can't imagine your baby face with a beard, Jameson. I never thought I had a baby face. It was always a man face to me. Everybody who's 15 years younger than me has a baby face. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. This show is sponsored by Gaslight Software. They're putting on a mastering backbone training in San Francisco at the Mission Bay Conference Center December 3rd through 5th. They'll be covering Jasmine, Backbone, and CoffeeScript. For more information or to register, go to training.gaslightsoftware.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 37 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the executive boardroom suite of Orem, Utah. Jameson Dance. Hey, guys. Joe Eames. Hey there. Merrick Christensen. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have some guests. And that is uh, Chris Kowal. Did I say Hello? that right? Yeah, Kowal. Kowal, okay. And Dominic DeNicola. Did I say that right? DeNicola. Denicola. It's okay. It got Americanized. That's probably the proper Italian pronunciation. Well, but I hi sa- guys. I speak proper Italian, so probably. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I think that the proper Polish is Kaval or something, but <laughs> yeah. Chris, are you from the Midwest? You have no. that kind of Minnesota-ish accent. No, I'm actually, unfortunately, from somewhere in the suburbs of Los Angeles, but I grew up inside of indoors and did listen to Prairie Home Companion when I was a kid, so I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Probably did it. <laughs> awesome. All right. So this week we're going to be talking about, actually, there's one thing I need to announce before. If you're listening to this episode, you probably notice a little bit of a difference with our sponsorship message. I actually uh, left off one important piece to one of the sponsorship messages, and that is for the Gaslight Software training that's going to be in San Francisco. If you want to sign up, go to training.gaslightsoftware.com, and uh, you can sign up there. They've, they've been a terrific sponsor, and I feel kind of bad that I botched that. But anyway, make sure that you go sign up if you want to get their Mastering Backbone training. All right, well, let's get into the show. So we're talking about promises, and myself being a slacker, I didn't actually go look up and see what promises are or how they're used. So I'm wondering if one of you guys can explain what they are. Um, yeah, I think I'll take that. A promise is a sort of abstraction for asynchronous programming. It's an object that proxies for the return value or the exception thrown by a a function that has to do some asynchronous processing. So it fulfills some of the same role as a callback, and it also does some other handy things and best practices for asynchronous programming underneath the hood, like guaranteeing that callbacks are actually asynchronous. They're not going to happen in the same turn. And it also does implicit error propagation, just like an exception gets gets percolated back up through the stack until it finds a place where it can be handled. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very powerful abstraction, mainly because it takes all of the synchronous concepts and, and wraps them back. So with a callback, you never know what's going to happen exactly. It's it's really because it's so raw and low level. It's completely up to the control of the library author. But with a promise, kind of we built in these guarantees that you know the callback or the the, the re- you only see the result once, you only see either the result or an error, and if there's an error, it'll propagate, as Chris said, which is awesome. 
that type of thing. So, so propagate how? I, I don't completely follow that piece. Yeah, it's in the, in the same section, in the same sense as a thrown exception. If you throw an exception from a function call and the parent function doesn't have a catcher, it'll, it'll continue up the stack uh, until it gets to a try catch block where it can be handled. Similarly with promises, you can chain promises. And if you don't put an error handler on, uh, one of these chain calls, it'll just, the, the error will pass through that point until it gets to the error handler. Okay. So more concretely in code, like when you're writing callback code, you know, you, you get an error and you're like, oh, well, I better check that and pass it up manually. Or maybe you forget, or maybe you're just like banging out code and, and you don't, you don't touch the error. Or maybe you try and just throw it because you're sick of passing errors up the stack, but you always have to handle it. And it's such a pain in, in promises. If you write your code that way, if all your functions return promises instead of calling callbacks, then they, they talk to each other in such a way that you can get this propagation through your functions and not have to deal with each step of the way dealing with the error. So that right there is like the, the gist of my problems using promises in real world projects. This is only in a brief cursory exploration, but I've been writing lots of code without promises. And it seems like it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Like you either have to retrofit large portions of your code base to use promises or they don't buy you very much. Is that your experience, or am I just doing it wrong? I kind well, of agree. Yeah, it, it, it is an infectious idea. It, it, you get the most bang for your buck if you're consistently using promises throughout, the, throughout your system. However, with Q, we've, in the last year, I think, I don't remember when we did this, but we started adding interfaces to make it easy to, trend, uh, to, to bridge between callbacks and promises so that you can really easily call functions that use the node style continuation passing or, or, or back and forth. So if you went from, you, so you can go from node to promises and promises to node as cheaply as possible. But it's true. Yes. You get the most from promises if you're using promises from top to bottom, especially since like there's, there's this layer with promises where you're interacting with callbacks inevitably. And it's usually very low level. And at that, and at that layer, using promises is actually kind of inconvenient. Dominic, can you take over? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, as Chris says, yeah, it's 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 nicer to have them all throughout your system, and the benefits there are, are kind of enormous. Um, I'll talk about that more, but uh, you know, it, you do need to write little wrappers around whatever your your traditional async code or your evented code or or whichever at the level you want to introduce your promises. So you can certainly use promises for all your application code. It's just then you need to use these little little queue utilities or or similar at the boundaries where you're interfacing with other people's code. Or you can just buy into the whole promise ecosystem and go look for some promise-using packages and then use them. In terms of the benefits, I did want to mention this. Uh, so I went to, to NodeConf summer camp uh, somewhat recently, and you know we had this whole discussion about domains, which apparently have been worked on in Node for a year. And there's this method of dealing with exceptions so that if you throw an exception in your program, you can kind of tell where it came from and in particular, what HTTP request it belongs to, so the user can get a 500 instead of crashing your server. And and what I was amazed at was I realized this was completely unnecessary in our HTTP server because we were using promises. So we got the normal exception bubbling behavior all the way back to the top of our request handler, and we're like, oh, somebody threw an error somewhere down there. I don't need any of these domains. I just got this error. I'm going to show it to the user in a 500 page. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. So you keep talking about Q. What, what is Q? 
Uh, Q is a project that I took over vaguely about two years ago. It's a it's a promise it's a promise API. Uh, it's in npm. You can just npm install Q. It also works as a script, so you can use it in the browser, and it introduces a Q global variable if you do it that way. And it it just provides ways to make promises, and then once you have them, you can start playing with them through their interface. And it's a uh, it was originally. Well, the original version was written by Tyler Close at Hewlett Packard, and he's a object capability security programmer now working at Google. And it it comes from it comes from uh, uh, this distributed computing um, world that distributed computing with object capability programming. So it's like this information hiding type of of programming. And so if out of out of that same out of that same group of people. The Google's Kaha project came out, and that's the sandboxing, the sandboxing of JavaScript so that you can have mutually suspicious programs running in the same context, like uh, login credentials and widgets. And also a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that came out in ES5 came from that group of people. Really, it all, it, it, I, from, from my understanding, it comes mostly from the work of Mark Miller, who now sits on TC39. And, it, it, it's, it has a really great academic heritage. I, so I took it up and decided to maintain it for Node and, and have carried it from there. Dominic started working with me about a year ago. Yeah, from a more practical perspective, uh, as somebody who just joined the project about a year ago um, and doesn't have all historical and academic heritage, Q is just like the most awesome promise library. So promises aren't like something built into the language, but they're a fairly simple thing you can implement in JavaScript. And uh, Q is just the most full-featured and the most like thought out, and I mean, in some ways, the most complicated and the most bloated. But I think, you know, at, at three kilobytes, it's it's not that bad. Um, it's it's got all the things I want, and when I, and and now that Chris has given me commit access, I just add more things when I want them. Um, and it, so the point is, if you want to use promises, Q is is a great place to start because it has all the toys. Later, you're like, oh, well, I only use this subset of promises. Maybe go check out a smaller implementation. But I think Q is, is great. So you talked about, or Chris talked about, the um, abstractions you added to make it easier to work with promises from callback APIs. Can you talk a little bit more about those? So they're, they're pretty simple. The idea is, my favorite is, is q.nfbind, um, which is just a funny way of saying, like, take this, this node callback and turn, or take this node function, which uses callbacks, and turn it into a function that returns promises. So you, you just pass it like fs.read file, and you get a version of fs.read file that returns a promise. And so it has the same behavior, like if fs.read file was going to call you back with an error, it would return a rejected promise, is what we call it, a promise in the error state. Um, uh, but then you could just easily adapt it by just adding these one-line little functions uh, to create it. Very cool. So um, what's like the difference? I, I think that most people who do use promises probably use jQuery's uh, promises since that's the most ubiquitous library that actually implements promises. What would be like some of the main differences between what Q does and what jQuery does? Um, I can I can take that. The The biggest difference between between jQuery's promises and uh, and Q's promises, and for that for that matter, a lot of the other Oh, I guess we'll we'll mention the common JS promises later. But the biggest difference is that it uh, a, a jQuery promise can receive multiple promises as an argument and then spreads them out into the arguments of the handler. 
So instead of modeling a function call, it models an array of function calls and, and allows you to handle all of them at once. We provide the same facility in queue in a slightly different way the, with a function that takes an array of promises and provides an array of, result, uh, of, of results. The, the other really big difference is in chaining. And the nice thing, the nice thing about having this abstraction that only models a single function calls return value or thrown exception is that when you call, uh, when, when you, when you chain on a queue promise, you get a new promise for, uh, for, for some further work and it's single resolution. With, uh, with, um, with, with jQuery's promises, the dot then method, which is sort of our, our main method for working with promises, um, you don't get that clean abstraction. Um, each then is is just chained in the in the in the jQuery way where it returns this. With a queue promise, it returns a new promise for whatever is returned by the callback or airback. And um, in all fairness, uh, jQuery does provide another method that lets you do that, but it's not as convenient. So actually, that's a little bit out of date. Um, jQuery okay. fixed themselves with one point eight. Their then method is now the same as their their pipe method. And it does do chaining, um, really? but they're, they have a fatal flaw in their chaining implementation, which is that they, they don't do thrown exception handling at all. Um, so the whole abstraction breaks down when you can no longer throw an exception and have it turn into a rejected promise. They just immediately like say, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to hand it off to the browser. Or if you were somehow using jQuery promises in Node, like with underscore um, deferred, for example, um, then that would crash your server. Um, so you lose all of the power, in in my opinion. And and so, you know, Chris is more diplomatic about it, but but I think jQuery promises are are an unfortunate blight on the world. And I, and I wrote a, a large essay about that recently, uh, about about how you know some some implementations are kind of missing the point of promises. Can we get a link to that in the chat notes so we can put it with the... Yeah, for sure. I think so it's been picked a few times on this podcast. It's really good. I, I rest it. So, Dominic, I got a question for you on the on the rejected with, with the thrown exception handlers. How does that work? I've noticed that when I when I throw an exception inside of a set timeout, etc., because it's on a different uh, call stack, you lose uh, access to the error at that point. And so even when I'm working with promises, I still have to manually do deferred.reject. Um, so how does the exception like uh, throwing get turned into rejected promises? How are you guys implementing that? Yeah, that's that's just done kind of how you would expect. There's a try-catch wrapping your callbacks, your, your, your handlers that you pass to then. And so if you throw an exception there, we catch it and transform it into a rejection. And yes, you discovered this this kind of Flaw where if you do a set timeout inside there, you're you're in trouble um, because you've escaped our our try catch. But this is kind of where where the the point earlier about you have to buy into promises all the way. If instead of using set timeout, you used a promise based method for delaying your work, like q.delay, which is just a utility function, um, then we'd be able to handle that no problem. So okay, very cool. I was just wondering because I you know. Anytime I'm testing out asynchronous control flow, set timeout is kind of where I go. So that was an unfortunate. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we should include that in the readme. Interesting. So I'm a little curious about how it actually, with the propagation, how that actually works. And, and really what I'm driving at is, at least in most of the other languages I've worked in, I haven't done a ton with exception handling in 
JavaScript itself. When you throw an exception and it bubbles up, um, it builds a stack trace as it goes, and it sounds like you're doing a try-catch at each level. So how do you do that and not lose the information as you bubble the exception up to the top? That's a fantastic question, and one of and it sort of leads into one of the be- the great features of of promises, especially with queues implementation. Dominic recently added support for long traces, which are asynchronous stack traces. So what we are doing in queue is keeping track of the turn of the event, uh, keeping track of the of the stack trace at each at each event loop turn. Where, uh, where you're deferring to an asynchronous operation. And we can stitch those back together to tell you not only what happened in your current turn of the event, but where you were coming from in previous turns. Because our promise chains model, um, model a, a stack trace. That so, makes sense. So I, I have one more question. And you, you keep saying turn, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by a turn. Right. It, it's, it's a, the idea is that in JavaScript you're running in an event loop. And each time you start a new event, it, it, it has its own, its own stack. And then the turn ends when you return back to the root of the event and another event gets to cha- a chance to run. Okay. So basically like process.nextTick and node will schedule you for the, the next turn of the event loop. And the next turn is when, so, so I can handle so many events at once. So when, when I have a, an open slot, then you get your mm-hmm. turn. Yep. Yeah. So, so one question I have about about the way that the the chaining works does that work in the browser as well, where you don't exactly have kind of APIs into the event loop? Sorry, the the uh, stack trace, the asynchronous stack trace, you guys are able to build up. Uh, yeah, it, it provided that you're on an on a on an engine that provides stack traces that are manipulable. Yeah, so if you're running in Chrome with V8, we can basically we're able to do your long stack traces for you in the browser as well. So what about IE and Firefox and Firefox Mozilla? Um, Dominic would have to tell me if he did anything about Firefox. My suspicion is no. Um, it does provide a stack trace, but it's not manipulable. It just gives you a string, um, and I I don't know anything about uh, the latest stuff from IE. Um, yeah, so actually, there's a. So we previously were using the V8 manipulate stack trace APIs, um, the, the error.capture stack trace. It's a really fascinating set of APIs if you, if you want to check it out, um, error.prepare stack trace. But we, we moved away from that in just the latest release to directly manipulating the strings because it turns out those APIs leak memory and it was just a bad, bad thing all around. There's like, if you touch the stack property, um, too early, or if, if somebody else touches it before you do, then you lose the ability to manipulate the stack trace. It was it was weird. So we're using strings now, and that does open up the ability of bringing in other browsers. I know IE10 has completely wholesale adopted Chrome stack trace format. So if I just remove some checks that like use capture stack trace, um, maybe it'll work in IE10. Firefox has their own weird format, but you know we could in theory write an adapter for that. So yeah, we could make it work everywhere, maybe. Right, so the yet-to-be-released Internet Explorer version. I, I, I just think it's funny. It, it, it should support it, but anyway. I, I, should hey, I don't think it's 8. I got I 10 all the way. <laughs> so, Dominic, do you think you could elaborate a little bit on the Promises A and the Promises A plus specification that you've kind of been working on? Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's, there's a fun story there. So as I mentioned, you know, I, I wrote this, this essay about you're missing the point of Promises, 
Um, and, and what happened there was, uh, was Ember, there was this, this commit to Ember, uh, that adds like Ember.deferred. And it basically was, it was not even a copy of jQuery's deferred. It was, it was even worse. Um, so, so I wrote this big long rant. I made it generic. I didn't mention too many names. Um, but, but the idea was, you know, I really wanted to get across that, uh, that promises as captured in the, the original common JS promises a spec, and and Chris can talk about more about that, because um, he was there and I think wrote it or no he no he no, no. Uh, Utah's very own Chris Zipe did that one. Yeah, um, but uh, but the point was that that the common JS promises a spec had a lot of wisdom in it, and that wisdom was condensed down into like two or three paragraphs that everybody keeps overlooking, and and so if they just paid attention, things would have gone well. Um, so what came out of this is kind of like, cause this had been brewing for a while, cause we'd had this, this defective jQuery implementation, um, in the community for years. And so, so what came out of this was a collaboration between a number of promise implementers, um, you know, my, myself and, and Chris from the Q side, but it was really led by, uh, Brian Cavalier. I'm, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but that he, he writes a promise library called WenJS. And it also, we were, we joined forces with Yehuda Katz, who'd rec- recently written RSVPJS, and and we we said, okay, let's let's get this settled once and for all. Let's write like a spec that takes the original CommonJS promises a spec, makes it more fleshed out, kind of standardizes on some things we've learned over the years, some some obviously missing features, and uh, and puts it all together. So that's that's actually like I wouldn't say it's finished, but at this point we're just tweaking the wording. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good and, and I'm very happy with that. And the next step is to, to finish writing a, a nice test suite so that everybody can test like an executable test suite so that you can say, Oh, I'm compliant with promises a plus. Um, or I can, I, well, I already wrote one for promises a. Yeah, I was going to say there already is a, you wrote a test suite already, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was, that was the part of the story I, I forgot and skipped over. So after writing this gist, I'm like, well, how can I actually not just make this a rant on the internet? Um, well, let me go off and write an executable test suite for promises a behavior and for some common extensions. So I wrote that and that actually got a lot of, uh, a lot of traction. Um, people really enjoyed making their libraries past that. And, and one library I mentioned earlier, the underscore deferred, which is a port of jQuery's, um, they recently like went to the trouble to, to conform to the test suite. So now we have something that started with this kind of crazy jQuery approach and it actually went and conformed to promises a so i feel like i actually did some good in the world that Uh, phrase like how can i make this not just a rant on the internet that is amazing that would like change the world if everyone did that (laughs) so true so what do you think of underscores deferred i mean i I haven't looked at it in detail but i'm just very glad that wookie hangover is, is the guy behind it um he he's uh he was totally willing to make it work in kind of a standard compliant and interoperable way. So it, it's, it's awesome to bring something, I guess, you know, for people who, who are coming from jQuery, it's a nice bridge between worlds. You know, it's got all the same kind of familiar APIs, but, uh, it's actually standard compliant. So, so I'm not familiar, I'm not familiar with that underscore different. It's not part of the regular underscore library, is it? No, it's, a, it's a plugin for underscore. And the idea is that it's just, uh, it's just a standalone version of jQuery deferred that you can use in Node or the browser um, without using all of jQuery. So, cool. so can I ask really quickly if you, if you write a test for this spec, uh, how do how do you do that without specifying what the API should be, or do you specify what the API should be? 
there are two levels of the API. One of them is that the promise library needs to give you some primitives to uh, to construct promises of various kinds, like rejected promises and fulfilled promises and deferred promises. Um, and no, uh, the implementations don't have a consistent API for that. So Dominic uses adapters for each of the implementations on that level. But once you've got a promise, the promise has a standard API, and that's and that's what the spec test, uh, what his test suite tests. Okay. Yeah, and you, you can add on extensions to the Promise API, like nice convenience functions or, or whatever, but the core functionality of this, this then method um, needs to be consistent. And, and the reason actually for that is, is not just because we like standards and, and think everybody should be the same, but actually because that way you can interoperate your promises. You can say, oh, well, I'm in a callback from a queue promise, you know, a handler, um, but I'm going to return a when promise, and that should work. And I think some of the, my, my favorite example of this, it's, it's, it's a little bit esoteric, is I wrote a, a, a assertion library that lets you make assertions in your tests about promises. And it just uses the then method and doesn't depend on any promise implementation at all. So you give it any promise that is compliant and has a good then method. It can do crazy stuff to chain off of that and create uh, a series of, of asynchronous tests for whether that promise is in the right state. So that, that library is called Chai as promised, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be in the show notes. I like it. I, I think it's cool. You know, and, and looking into promises and the then, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it a method or a function, but it just, it, it seems kind of nice as opposed to nesting your callbacks, you know, so that it's, we'll call this back. And then when you're done with that, then do this other callback. And then when you're done with that, cause you get this weird nesting and it's hard to think about and, you know, the dot then seems to just clear that up. So it's right. The the then method gives you the opportunity of, uh, but in some, it gives you, it gives you a choice. You can either nest or you can chain, and both work. And most in in most situations, they're the same. You would there are there are situations where it's com- where it's compelling to use nesting because you want to capture multiple values uh, in your closure and then combine them to provide a new result. Um, so it it doesn't. It doesn't completely replace nesting callback hell, but it does give you an out if you want to flatten it. Right. So is it is it solely, uh, I don't want to say one-dimensional, two-dimensional, where you have, you know, you can only say, you know, do this callback, then this callback, then this callback? Or can you do it so that it's, you know, like you said, you're going to go pull multiple sets of values and combine them, or you mm-hmm. want to log to several places at the same time? Yeah, you can have branches in your control flow with promises. Um, yeah, the thing and to that, keep in mind is is it's like synchronous code. That is what it's trying to model. So, you know, you can have branches in your synchronous code where you take a result and you do multiple things with it. Mm-hmm. Most of the code you write probably doesn't do that, right? It probably just moves it into the next stage of the calculation. But eventually, maybe you want to log it and display it on the screen. Who knows? Um, so you can definitely do that. You know, most of the code you write it doesn't need to catch exceptions. You catch those at the boundaries, right? So you don't pass them up all the time. That's that's kind of the compelling part there. Most of the, most of the synchronous code you write, you know, you don't need to capture things from multiple calculations and combine them. So you don't need to nest your promises is the equivalent there. But if you do need to like, you know, do this and this and this, and then put them all together, then you need to kind of nest your promises to get them all in the closure. Yeah, and and about Q, I mean, obviously you guys know more about that than anyone, but I, but I've noticed they have a lot of cool uh, 
like spreads and, and joins and things like that that make working with multiple promises, uh, you can kind of compose multiple promises into these, you know, unified promises, which are really right. good for that. Yeah, company, the, right. Right. The spread method is, is our way of, 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 of doing the nested promises without actually having to nest where you can take an array of promises and then receive them all as arguments. And, um, yeah, so you can flatten things out pretty easily. Yeah. yeah, that that is actually like the big difference between uh, well, there's two big differences between synchronous code and and asynchronous code with promises. Is you can do two asynchronous things at once, so you need like a method like q.all to aggregate the results um, and say, okay, well, wait for both of these to be done. And then the other big difference is is actually like the end of the chain at error handling. But I don't know if you want to dive into that because it's a bit technical. Go for it. All right, this is the dark side of promises. It's the dark side of, of exceptions too, but it's in promises, like they make the rest of error, or it's the dark side of callbacks rather too. But in promises, we make the error handling story so easy that you kind of forget you have to do anything. But the trick is, so you're, you're bubbling up your exception and in synchronous code, it gets to the top and you're like, Oh, well, nobody caught it. Let me just crash the program or put it in the, the window dot on error or whatever. Great. You can handle that in asynchronous code. You, somebody might come along to say, oh, I'm going to check out that, that's promises state and handle it later. So if you've bubbled up all the way to the top and nobody's listening, you can't guarantee that, that nobody, uh, that, that you should like throw immediately or crash the program or go to the console. You can't say, because oh, someone well, might pass that promise into some other handler or something. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, exactly. Like, and that's the idea is promises are first-class values, so you can just pass them around through, through your functions. So if, you, if you're not careful, you can swallow errors this way. And, and this, is, this is the sad part. I mean, and, and I don't think it's that big of a deal, like I said, because you can forget to do if error in your node callbacks. But it... If you yeah, don't, so, so we, we have a solution for this and, and Chris can talk about it, but it's, that's the problem in a nutshell. Yeah. And we have, we have a partial solution. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not about to claim that everybody's happy with it, but <laughs> I mean, the, it, there's a dark side for sure. The, the idea is that for one, we have a best practice. If you're, if you're, if you're providing promises as an API, you just return the promise. But if you don't return a promise, you have to terminate it with a call to dot done. Uh, dot done. Dot done receives uh, a promise, and then if that promise is rejected, it propagates an exception so that it behaves just like it had been uh, had bubbled all the way up to the top of the event and and been thrown in the global context. the The problem with that is yes, that we can end up with these free floating rejected promises lying around. We have a partial solution for that for um, some browsers, and that is that uh, we, we're taking advantage of the fact that if you log an array to the console in certain browsers, you'll get a live representation of that array. So what we do inside of Q is that every time you have a construct a rejected promise, or if a promise becomes rejected, um, it gets added to this array so that you can inspect the error, uh, the error stacks for any unhandled errors. But if somebody asynchronously handles that error, we remove it from the array. So you get a view of all of the presently unhandled errors as your program is running. We have some ideas for making a more general solution for that. Dominic uh, uh, has called out to make a, a browser extension 
And we need to do this anyway, because one of the powers of promises is that you can create this object graph that represents all of uh, all of the progress that your uh, all of the outstanding work that your program is doing as a as as a graph, and you can just say this node is waiting for this node, and this node is waiting for that node, and you look at it, and you get an error stack trace for any of those nodes. There's a a project from an older implementation of 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 promises called Causeway, which creates a visualization like that, and it also has a multi language protocol so that it can visualize. These outstanding—it's a great debugger for asynchronous code that gives you all of the stack traces of all pending work, basically. It's called what? Uh, Causeway. Very cool. Um, playing on uh, causality because all of these promises are creating these causal chains, like this because of that, because of that, because of that. Sure. So we need to we need to port that into the Q ecosystem at some point, and that's that's one of our long-term goals. Very cool. So I just want to take a step back and let you hopefully answer an easy question. So it seems like lots of the benefit in promises over callbacks is is in um, unnesting that pyramid of doom where you have lots of async operations in a row. And people talk about callback hell in Node or in the browser. And I always think that's a bit of a straw man argument because that's what you do by default if you don't know any better. But most of the time, you don't need to nest asynchronous functionality that much. You can use named functions, or you can use like a control flow library. So I haven't found that much pain in, in callback hell in a long time. So can you just talk about broadly, again, like what the, the big benefits over just using callbacks and, and managing callbacks well in your code are? So I'm going to put this right out is that Solving the pyramid of doom is not the biggest benefit of promises. It's the most appealing superficially because it makes it easy to go from using anonymous functions in one style to using anonymous functions in a flat style. And it, it does, it is, it is a superficial argument. The real benefits of promises are, uh, well, for one, there's the error propagation and implicit error propagation. I think that's probably the biggest advantage you get. Yes, agreed. Then after that, there's this, there's, there's this distant dream and, but the, I, I'm not going to pretend that promises as we have it right now are um, fulfilling that dream, but it's really about better ways to debug distributed programs. And and part of that is that using this promise, you get an implicit object graph which represents domains. It also represents it all. It also can represent control flow for multi-process programs. We don't really have a multi-process debugger yet, and promises are the primitive that we would need to be using in order to take advantage of a, of a district bugger. Um, so the way that works is in the long run. I've got another project called QConnection, formerly called QCom, which lets you use promises as proxies for remote, remote objects. And this is really where the real strength of promises shines. This is the thing that you can't do with callbacks. If you're using a prompt, so suppose that you request an object from a, from a, from another process. Right, you would immediately sure. promise for that from for that remote object. What if you could immediately start sending messages to that remote object, even though you don't have a physical copy of it yet, and even you don't even know whether it's going to be fulfilled or rejected in the future? But you don't want to waste round trip times. You want to start sending messages to this object now, so that they can be processed on the server as quickly as possible, and so that you can get responses. 
it as quickly as possible. That's what few promises are designed for at the core. They're a proxy for a remote object to which you can send messages. Presently, the most useful thing about them is that you can call dot then on them and get uh, and get resolutions in the same in the same process. But the real big benefit is when you're requesting a remote object and you want to communicate with it immediately through pipelining of these messages. So in addition to the dot then method, queue promises have a dot get method, a dot put or set method, a post, and these all correspond to these all correspond to primitive manipulations of objects, like getting a property of an object or setting a property of an object or calling a method of an object. It looks like the invoke method. And what the, and this, this, this level of abstraction says that if you are working with promises as proxies for other objects, you can pipeline messages and get responses as quickly as you can without causing um, the, pro the problem with chatty protocols where you're sending a message, waiting for the response. Okay, now I've got the response. I'm going to send another message. You know what I mean? So that sounds way more complex. Like it, that almost sounds like a, a queue. I mean, I guess it's funny because it's named queue, but it sounds like a, a message passing like queue based service where instead of doing that broadly with your architecture, you're doing that with individual objects. Uh huh. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. So that's super it, cool. It's so nuts, but it it's extremely powerful. Because right. you you can effectively manage and customize the callbacks on on an individual object basis, where with most queuing systems you set up some kind of helper or worker that uh, does a very specific job and does it well, does it over and over again. I'm like so, falling through that tunnel in 2001: A Space Odyssey right now. <laughs> so All right, let me let me pull you back so to the cool. tunnel a little bit, because Chris jumps straight from the like, you know. Nice little, yeah, you get error handling to, whoa, we have this amazing dream. And, and that is very cool. But I haven't gotten a chance to play with that yet. So I've just been stuck getting all the benefits back in, in, back on Earth. Um, <laughs> so here so, in the real world. Uh, for me, uh, the, the, the error handling benefit is huge. And, and there's also, I mean, that kind of comes with a, a theoretical benefit in that it parallels your synchronous code. So it's very easy to think about, right? Like with a callback, you know, you never know, like, is it going to give me two arguments or three or who knows? It's not going to be like a function that just returns a value. Um, you know, and, you know, you get these classic bugs and, and these get discovered, you know, weekly where somebody called their callback twice or called their callback with an error, but then also with a value. And, and so, or, or that they threw an exception, so their callback never gets called. Right, you get these kind of guarantees with promises that it acts like a function call. It'll always, you know, come back with a single value or a thrown exception, and never both, and never twice. So that's a big benefit. Um, just kind of theoretical, though. The other thing is that you know when you're doing asynchronous code, you're going to need some basic joining primitives, some something like you know async for each or async, you know, uh, map or whatever. Q has that in, in a very nice and, and kind of unified form. It's not just these kind of ad hoc methods that take arrays of arrays of functions and arguments to pass to those functions or so, so on. Um, and, and I think that the promise API where you get first class objects representing the result of your computation is what allows that to, to be true. And finally, to go, to go into the, the atmosphere perhaps, if not the stratosphere, um, because promises give you this, this, this synchronous to async parallel, 
um, they provide the foundation for the future in in ECMAScript 6, we're going to have generators, which are an ability to uh, exit your function for a while, then come back in. And so, so this is mostly used, the examples are like sequences, where you generate a sequence and you yield, um, and then you come back in when somebody calls you the next time. But because they allow you to exit functions and come back into them, this is exactly what you need for asynchronous code. So there's a really great proof of concept of using generators plus promises to give you this kind of a synchronous looking, but still very clearly delineated as async code using this yield keyword in ECMAScript 6. So you can actually already do this in Firefox, but uh, it's uh, it's not working in any other browser yet, and who knows when Chrome is going to get around to implementing generators or whatever. But it's, this library is called taskjs.org um, by, by one of the people on the Mozilla team, and, and it's that's that's my dream. Um, is, is to get that working everywhere. Yeah, so the, talking a little bit about driving the future of, of JavaScript, Q is coming from a heritage from Mark Miller, who's on TC39 and proposed uh, a concurrency straw man for the next version of JavaScript, which introduces um, additional syntax to make working with promises um, simpler. And Dave Herman took up that and put together TaskJS, which composes promises with generators to create sequential looking control flow using promises and everything. So you can have a, a yield within a try and you can catch an, an asynchronous exception with a synchronous try catch block. It is a very, very beautiful abstraction. So I don't know too much about the generators, but I've been a long time believer that the best place to solve the promises problem is definitely in the language itself. And I wish that the, when you know, as they've been working on CoffeeScript, I wish that they would have put something, uh, be it like Q or like what jQuery has or, you know, async or futures.js, whatever. I wish they'd put something like that in CoffeeScript. Right. Because that, that's, it be. really belongs in the language. Right. If you take a look at a language that has promises as a primitive, there's E, which is uh, the, the language that Mark Miller put together before he uh, started working with JavaScript. And in E, promises are a primitive, and you can send messages to them directly using object-like notation. Um, and that, that's, that's what, that's what Mark Miller is pushing for in the, in the concurrency straw man. More, more primitives in the language. Uh, e also has, uh, primitive when, uh, when catch blocks to, to, to resolve promises, just like our dot then methods, except with language level syntax. There, we're entering an age of transpilers. So, I imagine it would be pretty simple to embed embed a promise abstraction inside of CoffeeScript. I know why CoffeeScript didn't do it. CoffeeScript wanted to be as close to JavaScript as it could be without a runtime to avoid early versions. I don't know what Dart's up to now, but um, the earliest one had a huge runtime that came with it. Part of CoffeeScript's success is that it doesn't come with a runtime. Well, what I'm saying is, like, with CoffeeScript, you could take a library and you could just make it so that every single function returns a promise object, you know, like so that it's just standard. So you don't have, because like the reason that I myself don't use promises very often, like I, I use a for each async and I use a, a join to join multiple callbacks because that actually simplifies my workflow. But going back to the original statement, in order for promises to really be effective, you have to be extremely vigilant about it. You have to do it the whole way through your framework from the ground up and there's just a lot of boilerplate that you have to introduce in every function. You have to create the promise. You have to return it. You have to do something with it, whether it's synchronous or not. I mean, if you really want it to be composable, 
then everything has to be a promise, even if it's synchronous, so that you really get the full benefit of it all. Yeah, I, I mean, on a, on some levels, I agree, and others, I don't. I like, I don't think that every function needs to be asynchronous, and a lot of functions don't benefit from it. But on the other hand, if it were something that the that the language optimized, yes, yeah, it could be better, for sure, for sure. So I have, I do have a question about. Um, I was trying to do some uh, testing with promises. And I was actually mocking an external dependency that had a promise interface to it. And so I was using sign-on.js and trying to replicate an object that actually had a promise in sign-on, and it ended up being a Herculean pain in the butt. I don't know if you guys have had any experience in, in mocking promises and have any advice for, for that, but if so, that would be great. Yeah, so I do this all the time. Yeah, it's... Promises, I, I guess maybe we should write this up somewhere, like guide to testing with promises. But, you know, th there's a few levels, but it sounds like, if, especially if you're just trying to mock an API, all you need to do is include a promise implementation like Q and just return a promise that's already fulfilled or rejected with whatever you want. So I have tons of things in my, in my tests that just say, okay, take this API and stub it out to always return a fulfilled and then test that the behavior is what I want and make it always return a rejected, and then make sure it always does what I want. And so it's it's not that bad. You just, I mean, I, it sounds like you were maybe trying to re-implement a completely fake promise with no helper, which would not be fun because then you have to follow the spec and then you start implementing a promise library and that takes like at least 60 lines of code. So yeah. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but um, your, your idea is brilliantly simple and I feel stupid for not having thought of it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, the other things about testing promises, and I've spent a lot of time on this, making this easier, at least for myself, um, and, and some other people seem to use it too, is uh, it's really natural to return your promises as the last thing you do in, in any promise function, but even in your tests, right? So, so your test will succeed if the returned promise is fulfilled and will fail if it's rejected, and that's not supported by very many test runners. It's The only one I know it's natively supported by is Buster, but I don't know anybody who uses Buster. I'm maybe that that's bad. I don't know. It's probably a great testing framework. Um, the one I use the most Buster is Mocha. Huh? I like other ones more than Buster. It's probably the nice way to say that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's fine because we have solutions for them too. <laughs> There's uh, the Jasmine in particular has a, a pretty pluggable architecture. I managed to make it so that it blocks could accept promises as return values and like maybe. 10 or 15 lines. So, uh, and I know that Dominic has done some other work for other promise li uh, for other assertion libraries and I'll take it away. Yeah. So my thing is, is Mocha as promised. Um, so Mocha is, is my favorite test runner these days. And, uh, you know, I tried to submit a pull request. He's like, nah, I don't like promises. I'm a callback guy. And, uh, you know, I, after collecting enough plus ones and realizing it was never going to happen, um, I just went off and I, I, Duck punch the hell out of Mocha, so now it, it returns Mocha. So it does not have a very pluggable architecture like like Jasmine. I actually do some amazing tricks where when I, I because they don't hide encapsulate any of their variables, I create a setter on the prototype of the test suite that intercepts when Mocha sets the function and then it wraps it with another function that works better with promises. It's it's awesome. Some of my favorite code, I have like a 40-line comment block, maybe not that long, like 10-line comment block explaining how this works. Um, but it works. 
and it's it's fun. So the upside is, yeah, you can do exactly that. Um, the other thing I did is Chai as promised, which I mentioned earlier. Um, it's the idea there is that Chai is is an assertion library that lets you say kind of very fluid assertions, like you know this should be okay, this should have been called with thirty, whatever. I just added a little plugin to it, so you could say this should eventually be okay, this should eventually deep equal five, ten, twenty. And that gives you a promise, which you can then use with Mocha's promise to just return it. So your assertions about your promises end up looking very nice and almost synchronous. So it's, it's, but as again, like some people say you shouldn't, and I agree that you shouldn't make your async code look too much like sync code. Um, and, and that's true. But if you can just introduce like one little signifier, like eventually or await or yield or whatever, that I think is the perfect, perfect medium. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I really like it. Should eventually equal. Well, I think we're uh, we're running out of time here. Um, are there any other critical parts of promises or queue that you want to go over that we haven't hit on yet, or uh, anything that's coming up in the future that we should talk about? No, I think that we've we've laid out where we are and where we're going pretty effectively. Um, the the one thing I can do is encourage you guys to all go check out the queue readme. James Burke, one of my contributors on Q, recommended a long time ago that we needed a graduated tutorial because it's a sufficiently complicated concept. So I replaced the entire README with a step-by-step introduction to promises, and I think that you guys will all enjoy that. James Burke, I know I've talked to him before. Require.js. Require.js. Oh, yes. That's where I've talked to him before, on this show. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Well, um, then we'll go ahead and wrap this up. We'll get to the picks. Uh, AJ, what are your picks? Jameson, <laughs> what are your picks? I only have one. Um, okay. It's called Code Triage. CodeTriage.com. It's a cool little service that somebody made to basically subscribe you to triage some issues on different GitHub projects. And I think it, it works by finding the projects that are like most watched with the most issues. It has some heuristic like that. Um, but basically, it has lots of popular projects, and if you want to, it's it's a good way to kind of make yourself get involved in these open source projects. If you're not really sure where to start, you log in with your GitHub username and password and stuff. Well, OpenID, you don't give them your password. Um, and then you subscribe to projects, and then every day you get a random issue, a random unclosed issue from this project, like emailed to you. You can check it out and close it if it's old or help work on it if it's new. So that's been kind of fun. I've been doing that for a week, and it's been cool. I've learned stuff about all these projects, even if I haven't contributed tons to them yet. So it's just codetriage.com. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I've got uh, three of them. The first one is uh, the Creative Sandbox uh, Guidebook. And I've, I'll be honest, I actually have no idea what it is. I, I haven't looked at it very closely to what it is. Some, I think it's something about promoting your business with videos or something. But it's this website built by Google, and it's the coolest thing because it's literally like a flip-open book, you know, those pop-out books that you find for real. It's like one of those implemented on, on a web page, and it's way cool. It's just visually, it just tickles my fancy. So I want to pick that. Um, I'm also going to pick Steam because they just finished up their Thanksgiving Day sale, and at the end of the year, they'll have their year-end sale they always have. And that's awesome because I'm a compulsive game buyer, so I picked up like about like four games on with the average price of, I think, $7.00. That are really awesome games. So I, I escaped unscathed from the Steam did Thanksgiving you? sale. Yeah, I was glad. <laughs> I did. I did not. I did not. I have my copy of Tropical Four. I've been wanting for quite a while, and several others. 
And then uh, the last pick I'm going to pick is uh, Pluralsight.com, which is not a wholly selfless pick because I actually do some work for Pluralsight. But uh, I kind of felt like I had uh, missed out some computer science fundamentals type stuff with some data structures and algorithms recently. And so I wanted to go find a place to go learn that. And I've been looking all over these really old 1986 recordings of MIT courses and stuff. And uh, even though I'm an author for Pluralsight, I didn't realize they actually had a course for it. So I just was uh, amazed at all the, f the high number of courses that Pluralsight has on all kinds of programming topics. Uh, once again, even though I'm very familiar with them, I was still amazed at things that I didn't know. So I'm going to pick Pluralsight.com. Nice. Chris, what are your picks? Check out Montage. I work on uh, an open source framework for web applications, um, particularly targeting tablet, but also great for desktop. And it uses promises in its module loader, and it can run and load CommonJS modules in the client side, even in development with uh, just a no build step. And yeah, check that out and check out the module system for it. It's montage.js slash Mr. MR. And uh, I think that you guys will enjoy that. Sweet. All right, Dominic, what are your picks? Gosh, I really want to tell you about some cool stuff I'm working on for Windows 8 and Node.js together with with stuff, but it's not quite ready yet. So so keep an eye out for, I'll, I'm sure I'll publicize it when it is. It'll be under the name Winning.js. And, and I guess I have a, a talk on why I'm doing this because I'm so dissatisfied with the Windows 8 JavaScript developer experience. So you can check that out on YouTube. Um, I gave it at Cascadia.js. Nice. All right, so I only have one pick. I, I bought an iPhone 5, and I am a OmniFocus. OmniFocus. Oh, um, no, not that. <laughs> and so OmniFocus for iPhone actually has a feature where if you create a, a to-do or a reminder on your iPhone with Siri, it'll actually pick it up and suck it into OmniFocus, and then I get it everywhere. I use OmniFocus, which is everywhere. So uh, anyway, I'm just going to pick that feature. There's a video on the OmniFocus website. Finally, we'll go to AJ for his picks. Uh, so I'm just going to be quick because there's some other people talking here too. But uh, there's this product called Buckyballs. Unfortunately, they're quitting their business, but they're extremely fun magnet toys. And they have uh, a few hundred left before they clo close out their inventory. Um, and one of them is it's uh, magnet rods with little steel or iron ball bearing things. And you can make way cool structures out of them. And, Are they uh, discontinuing them because people would eat them and then they would like stick together in their intestines? Yeah, that's it. Yes, yes. But there's some other companies that are also producing them, but they don't, they're just doing the, the quote-unquote Zen magnets that are the little balls, whereas Buckyballs actually has several types. All right, cool. Well, let, we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for coming again, guys. It was, it was really, really awesome. And I'm definitely going to have to go check out Promises. Yeah, this All was right. great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. Well, we will end it. We'll catch you all next week.